Welcome, I'm David Yoakum, the director of the lab at DC, and it is my sincere pleasure to have Dan Ariely with me, professor at Duke University, and also the author of really a lot of different books, including Predictably Irrational. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. I want to start with a very important question, which is that I managed to find photos of you in a bumblebee suit yes. online. What is the backstory on that? It was a combination of Halloween and uh, the attempt to do something on behavioral economics and um, that was the the birth of that and I, I kind of liked that uh, that suit so I, I stayed with it for a little bit too many uh, too many Halloweens and I assume that's your formal attire moving it, forward um, actually so, so I'll tell you the the uh, the formal attire I like the most is the one I wear for graduation ceremonies uh, so uh, so I have two PhDs one from UNC one from Duke and you know every university has its own colors and, and so on for the the gown yeah. for graduation so uh, at some point I I had to pick up a gown I didn't want to take UNC I didn't want to take Duke you know it's kind of a rivalry uh, so I picked the international gown of wisdom which is Obi-Wan Kenobi <laughs> So I got, uh, actually tailor-made, it's amazing what you can find online. So there's a tailor-made, I got a tailor-made Obi-Wan Kenobi uh, suit, it includes boots and I, I, unbelievable. I also got a saber, <coughs> it comes with it. In the first year I showed up with a saber and since then I uh, knight my PhD students on the stage with the, with the saber and I give them my own, their own saber. So now it's a whole, it's a whole tradition that came out. So. <laughs> So I have so many more questions about that now, but I'll shift us a little bit, which is about your book. Actually, can I, can I say oh. one more thing about attire? Sure. So, uh, so we did a study once in which we um, printed on people's shirts the word stingy or the word generous. Uh, it wasn't their shirts. We, we gave people shirts and we asked them to walk around campus and, and we gave different tasks. And when they came back, we gave them a task that tested their stinginess and generosity and unsurprisingly people with the word generous were more generous, people with the word stingy were more stingy. But for half the people the print was on the inside of the shirt. So that you knew it as the person wearing it but the other people did not. And the effect was slightly larger hmm. for those groups. You know when we think about fashion uh, we often think about signaling to other people. Right? What are you telling the world with this? suit and a tie and so on, yeah. what they're communicating, but, but I think part of the story is also what we're communicating to ourselves, right? We have this, the idea is that we, we know ourselves, we don't know other people, but the truth is we also don't know ourselves, right? And this notion of self-signaling, you, you walk down the street, you see a beggar, you give them five dollars, you say, to yourself, oh, I'm a good person, you're just the same person, but you prove to yourself that you're a good person, and how are our actions actually communicating to ourselves, not just to other people who we are, and and can we use that to sustain behavior in a better way? Yeah. Well, so how, one of the most challenging parts of my job is getting up and getting in a suit every morning, <laughs> which is not my style at all. What, I mean, how, should, how does wearing a suit versus casual clothes, do we know anything about how it affects people's day-to-day -day and how the way they think, the way they act? So, you know, um, uh, when Obama was in office, he said he, he picked one suit and he was wearing the same thing uh, every day. 
Oliver Sacks, the, the great uh, physician, neuroscientist, he, he actually took that to extreme. He, he would choose what he was going to wear and what he was going to eat for a whole month and just pick with the same, with the same strategy. So one of the easy things with the suit is that it takes away decisions. You probably don't have to debate what to wear, mm -hmm. what to wear in the morning. But, but I think there is an element of, you know, a, a suit is kind of the, the modern knight armor, right? I mean, it is, there's a, there's a ceremony in which you, you put it on and, and the tying of the, of the tie and so on. And I think it does create a separation from work to home it does create a separation of I'm I'm here and I'm in I'm in business and mm. and so on, and and I would I would even challenge you to make it more ceremonious than you probably do now, right? So if you if you just put it on and you say oh what what a pain, that's probably not going to translate into professionalism. But if you if you take kind of lessons from religion about rituals, like think about the the Jewish ritual of washing the hands. It's not just washing the hand efficiently, there's some things that you do and some words that you say. Um, I think if you can create a higher order meaning for yourself about what this, what this means, uh, you could, it could reinforce your own behavior. Right. Well, so part of this is how subtle features like even what I'm wearing are influencing the way I potentially behave, which pivots, I think, into predictably irrational. Unpack that term for us. So, you know, sometimes when people think about irrational, uh, they think about just being wrong, um, and uh, you know, just somebody's just random. It's just, it's just like um, not predictable. It's just one way, another one time, another way, another time. And the idea of predictable irrational was the idea that there is a sensibility in what we think of as, as irrational. It's not just random, but it's something predictable and something that is rooted in the way our brain works in our psychology and so on. So that's the first thing. And then the second is it's not always bad, right? It's different than what we think about rational. So there's rational, there's a deviation from that, but it doesn't mean that rational is always good and irrational is always, always bad. For example, you can think about human generosity. Right? Uh, economists uh, are troubled by why people give tips in restaurants that, that in different cities, like why would you ever do that, right? It's after the meal, you never intend to go there. Why, why are you wasting your money? Uh, the truth is that we do feel tremendous social pressure to tip, even in restaurants we don't intend to go to. People don't tip very differently than one that they intend to go. It's part of our nature to reciprocate. Mm. So the, the notion is to look at our actual behavior um, in a systematic way to find out what is systematic. Uh, errors that we make and try to fix them and try to find what are the systematic beautiful things that we do mm -hmm. even if they're irrational and try to build on them. Right. Could you give us another example of these types of systematic errors? Uh, there, there, are many, there are many systematic um, uh, errors. I'll, I'll just give you one of them. Uh, I flew, I came here uh, yesterday from, from Israel and my original flight was delayed and I had to take a different a different flight, and, and the route I took was to, instead of coming to D.C., I had to go uh, to Chicago and back uh, to D.C. Now, time-wise, it was the only way I could make it, right? So it was a, a good use of time. But the fact that I had to overshoot the East Coast and then come back, it, it just felt incredibly um, wasteful, right? So here was, I was 
I was optimizing on time. I wanted to optimize on time. This was the right way to optimize time. Sitting in a plane, not very different than sitting in the chair waiting for a plane. For, but, but nevertheless, the, this seemed like, like a waste. I'll give you another one from the, the world of municipalities. There's a company I really love called Waste Zero. They're, they're in North Carolina. And they are trying to use the principle of the pain of paying to get people to throw less trash. So trash is a problem everywhere. I'm sure it's a problem here. Um, I think in Massachusetts, they don't even have a single place to throw trash anymore in Massachusetts. They have to, to drive it to different states. Um, so what, what Way Zero are doing is they're going to city halls and they're saying, instead of collecting trash in these big bins, let's collect it in the trash bag. Seems wasteful. But these trash bags are going to be bright yellow. And they're going to be expensive, like crazy expensive, like $3 a bag. Now what happens? What happens is that people have to buy these big, yellow, expensive trash bags. They put them in the trash can at home. And every time they're about to throw something in, they're slightly outraged. Not outraged, but they're slightly annoyed. Mm -hmm. Right? And what happens? You have a default option of throwing everything into the trash without thinking. But that yellow sign of I'm an expensive bag gets people to stop pause and you know what people found the ability to recycle and to even compost and what what they found is that these bags are not only expensive but they dramatically reduce cost and as they reduce cost sometimes city halls come to them and say let's reduce the the cost of these bags because we don't need to collect so much money but they say no, no you have to annoy people the only reason it works is that people are a little bit outraged at the cost of this so here is something called the pain of pain you could pay for trash indirectly through taxes. You can pay a tax once a year or all. That is going to have very little impact on your behavior. Why? Because we're sensitive to the marginal cost, not to the fixed cost, right? And the marginal immediate cost. And every time you have a bag this way, you feel it every time. And feeling it, making it salient, is the thing that actually drives behavior rather than having a $120 bill at the end of the year to pay for mm -hmm. trash. Mm -hmm. So understanding what are the sticking points for human psychology and where are those things driving us the wrong way and where, where could we take advantage of them to drive people the right way. Or think about energy use. Uh, right now, the energy meter is outside of people's homes, uh, automatically deducted from your checking account mostly. How much attention do we expect people to pay to the energy bill? Very little. Right. If you and I were designing the energy bill, we would do something very different. The energy meter would be in the middle of the kitchen. Mm -hmm. uh, you would have to fill it with cash every day. I mean, we'll do all kinds of things to get people to, to be selling. More generally, you know, every policy is a desire to change behavior. There's not a single policy that is not, otherwise you would do the policy. And the question is, are we, are we making these policies with the eye of understanding what influences human behavior? And if we're not, how likely are we going to be mm -hmm. successful? Here's a very extreme example. Um, the death penalty. The death penalty has this theory that people are going to worry about being killed and therefore would not commit the crime. Right? So you think, but what's the theory? The theory is that you, you come home, uh, you're pissed with your significant other, you go to the kitchen, you take out a big knife, and then you say, oh, I remember now we have a death penalty in this, in this state, uh, let's do something else instead. Right. Right? That 
having a death penalty doesn't change actually the the statistical analysis shows that states with death penalty don't have a differential crime rate compared to states that don't have this penalty so here we have a theory that says the death penalty would weigh on people's decisions and therefore they will behave differently it just doesn't work this way so we just have a, an ineffective policy if instead we understood what really drives people we would enact much better policies right well so I know there's many different sticking points that people can encounter. You've done a lot yeah. of research on them and lots of different types of insights that might get past those sticking points. If you were, let's say you're the city administrator for the day and you get with your senior staff and agency directors to have a moment in time to talk about what you would think would be some of the opportune top one or two sticking points or way of thinking about <clears throat> policy differently, where would you go first? So, so. If I had a short time frame, I think the number one principle would be friction. It would be to say, there's the things that people want to do and the things that they do, and the gap with them, between them is about the difficulty of taking an action. And we have to think about where are these gaps too large. So you can go all the way from people want to eat well, but it's a little harder to find good food. People want to exercise, but basically finding the places where we're doing things that are a little too difficult for people and and too difficult can be very very easy like we can think about it as something uh, being very very trivial but i would think about that so that's that's one one place the second thing i would think about is actually let me say one more thing about friction <coughs> so think about friction banks you have a form that takes your salary and deposits it to a bank. I've seen many of those forms. I've not seen a single form where on the form it gives you an option to divide the, the money between checking and saving, and it has a default of 20% mm -hmm. to savings. So what we do is we haven't made it easy for people to divert money from salary to savings. It goes all to checking. Crazy, right? It's just crazy. Like you say, it, you're already filling a form, Put the number for savings, put 20%, you want to change for 15, fine. But, but don't ask people to find another form to, to, to do the thing. So, and it's that level of friction. I would look at all kinds of places where we could, we could cut things. Um, and of course, know, the government is covered with forms all forms, over the yeah, place. That's right. that's I'll right. use this as a place for a shameless plug that one of the things that we're doing here in the district is a form of palooza to try to actually go form by form and think about how behavioral science can be used to make things smoother. Absolutely. Um, another example, not a form example, is the refrigerator. Uh, in the refrigerator we have a special place for the things that is the most expensive and perishable, which is in the bottom in an opaque drawer. Right? And if you, if you ask the question, like, where would they put the most perishable, expensive stuff? You wouldn't come with the answer of let it put it in the bottom in an opaque drawer. And, you know, what we find is that people think about what to eat. They open the refrigerator. Now, at that point, they could, in principle, bend down and open the drawer. People do it less than 10% of the time. What do we do? We look at eye level. That's what comes to mind. That's what we end up eating. Right? Crazy system. By the time you remember to open the bottom drawer, things have gotten rotten. So, so I, would, I would think the first thing I would think about is, is at that level. The second thought is about the places where we need a good equilibrium. 
so so this is kind of my, currently my metaphor for life. I just came from a month-long hike, which is this this beard, and um, so so you know, of course, the public school game. Here's an example of the public school game. We have uh, ten people, and every morning each person gets ten dollars, and they can keep the money to themselves, or they can put it in the central pot. This is all done anonymously. The money in the central pot grows five times in the evening, divide by everybody. What happens? Day one, ten people, ten dollars, hundred dollars. Everybody puts their money in. Multiply five times, $500, equally divided by everybody, everybody gets $50. Life is good. Game continues like this for a while. Everybody gets money. And this is what it means to live in a good society. You contribute, society multiplies, public goods and so on, roads, education and so on, everybody benefits. One day, one person decides to betray the public good. Nine people put $10 in, one person keeps their money. Now we have $90, multiply five times 450, divide equally by everybody because even the person who put nothing still mm -hmm. gains from the public good. Everybody gets $45, that one person who betrayed the public good has $55. They have the 45 plus two. So that person betrayed the public good, but they get to benefit. What happens the next day? Nobody puts money. Right? And, and this is a situation that has two equilibria. There's a good equilibria where everybody puts all the money in and everybody benefits. There's a bad equilibria that nobody puts money in and nobody gets any, anything back. The thing about it is there's no middle point. There's no like 20% of the people giving. If one person deviates, the equilibria drops to nobody contributes. And the other thing about this is that the good equilibria is very weak. It's enough for one person to betray it, for the thing to collapse. The bad equilibria is very strong. If one person starts giving, nothing changes. And, and I think it's a good metaphor for our personal lives. Right? You think about what a loving relationship is, right? If you betray the public good ones, there's a good chance the relationship will collapse. But I think it's also the role of regulation. The role of regulation in many ways is to keep the good equilibrium, mm -hmm. right? We, we want to live in a society where <clears throat> everybody contributes. And when people start betraying the public good, when there's a deviation of trust, or people don't show up to school, or, or pollute, or double park, or whatever it is, there's a deterioration of the public good. And the question is, how do we sustain the good equilibrium? And so, so friction, I think, is very easy to think about, and you can probably, in the same way that you're doing with the forms, and you can go over lots of things that we're doing and say, let's identify friction. Right. Um, Let's identify places where citizens are not taking advantage, are not taking, not getting the benefit that they deserve, all, all kinds of things like that. But the second thing is to realize where is our collective action not representing what we, what we want? Right. And how do we create a better collective action like around pollution and driving and traffic jams and so on? And how do we think about creating better equilibrium? Right. And so once an equilibrium is sort of disrupted or deteriorated, what are the kind of tools that are disposed or a way of thinking about how to get it <coughs> back? So I think the solution is kind of like the Day of Atonement or you know the Catholic Confession and you just have to have to restart. And different ones will have a different uh, starting point, but uh, you remember the story about uh, Mokus, the, the mayor of Bogota, mm -hmm. and uh, Mokus basically. What happened was that people were not stopping in red. Right, people just going into the into the junction, and you know, if if you're in that situation, other people like, let's say only 15% of the people don't stop in red and go into the junction. Are you going to wait? Of 
course not, right? So you get to the bad equilibrium. He hired mimes to basically stand in street corners, in all street corners, and to mock people who were getting into the, the junction. And he, he realized that it's important to solve the problem altogether. You can't reduce it by 10%. It would not sustain. So there was a period of time, I think it was a week, and the mimes were there, and they basically changed everybody's behavior together at the same time. So whether you talk about kids not showing to school, and then teachers being late, or whether, whether you talk about throwing trash or not paying taxes, or whatever, whatever the form of non-collaboration is, we need to stop it and reset the standard all at once. These are not things that we could fix 10% at a time. Right. So last question then, what are the kind of things that are coming down the pike for you, either that you're doing next or that you're particularly excited about for research that you're about to do or you're seeing being done <coughs> elsewhere? What's coming next? What's coming next? So uh, my research lab right now, we're dealing about uh, maybe 50% of our effort is on financial decision-making for lower middle income. Um, another part, we're doing stuff on health, trying to get people to take their medication, exercise, uh, eat better. Um, we're doing some things in Africa, which is an exciting opportunity because we're learning a lot uh, from this and also changing behavior. And then we also have an, a technology arm. So recently we've uh, invited startups to come and hang out with us. These are startups mostly doing health and financial decision making. And we're learning from them and they're learning from us. And this, for me, kind of taking the basic studies on financial and health decision making and where we go wrong, and then implementing them in software. Not everything is easy to implement, but trying to implement them in software is basically the key to scale. So. I think academic studies are great, it's, it's a lot of fun, uh, but I like to keep an eye to say how we're going to, to scale it. And technology is, is giving us great opportunities to think about how we're going to, to scale things. So for me, maybe that's the most exciting thing now, is that we can you know, do, not only do the studies, but we can, from the beginning, think about how we're going to scale them and be prepared for that part. That's great. Well, Dan, I really appreciate your time. Also, appreciate you giving a talk today at the lunch at DC. If you haven't already, you should go to lab.dc.gov and sign up for more events and great speakers like Dan. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it.